This is Top Floor, episode 61. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 61. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show as a pre-Expedia Hotwire alum and former CEO of Points Hound, Peter Van Dorn has an impeccable travel tech pedigree. Pete was acquired by Points where he spent three and a half years before embarking on a hiatus of sorts, traveling around Europe, surfing in Portugal, and investing in travel startups. In 2019, Pete was connected with climate scientist Nick Cavanaugh through a mutual friend and investor. And today he is head of business development at the company Nick founded, Sensible Weather. While Sensible refers to itself as a climate and analytics and insure tech company that de-risks the weather for travel brands and their consumers... You might say that the company safeguards customers against bad weather and not just the metaphorical kind. So Pete and I are going to talk about the weather, the challenge of navigating hotel tech stacks, and what makes actuarial science, if not sexy, then at least interesting. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630 or send me an email at susan at topfloorpodcast.com. Today's question was submitted by Dean. And Dean says, how do I explain a few years of travel when I'm pitching my startup to investors? And then Dean puts in parentheses, this could also apply to just a resume. Since I know you did that, how did you explain it? Or did you even feel like you had to explain it? Yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on it. I I just mentioned that I took a break and kind of expanded my horizons and had some new experiences, met some new people, and all of that kind of contributes to my current worldview and what I'm looking to do today. So I don't think that should be, you know, assume that that's going to be a negative by any means. Um, I think if anything, it makes you more interesting and um, you know, gives you something interesting to talk about with that investor. I agree with you. I think that's much less of a big deal than it would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. So your career background is almost a microcosm of the history of travel tech. You started at Hotwire when it was a joint venture between the six major US airlines before it got acquired by Expedia. What I want to understand is you have a degree in international relations. So what drew you to a company like Hotwire? Well, I had been a user of the product at the time, Hotwire was just a flights booking service. They didn't have hotel or car rental back in 2001. So I had been using Hotwire to get cheap flights back and forth from San Francisco to Boston, where I grew up. So my, I guess, personal use case was the initial draw. But 
again, this was back in the summer of 2001, which was during or just after the kind of dot-com meltdown when most Bay Area startups were folding up. So Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hotwire was just one of the few companies out there that was growing and hiring. And so you know, part of the story is just there were limited options. So I was I was lucky to have the opportunity at that time. So international relations was your major because oh, because I was you know interested in the course material. It's effectively political science with a language requirement, and I had uh, spent a lot of time in high school and grade school studying Spanish, and so I was also a Spanish major. And so oh. it was really just combining that Spanish major with with the political science. Got it. And are you still fluent? Um, it takes me a couple of days. Reading and writing and uh, understanding are, are better. Speaking, it takes me a few days to warm up, but it's all in there somewhere. It just takes some time to come out. <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm still learning French, but I can read French all day long because I took many, many years of Latin. But um, the speaking part, maybe not always the best. So after business school, you returned to the travel space at what was then Easy Res Software. It's now mm-hmm. called Switchfly. Was it always part of your plan to get back into the travel space or did it just work out that way? It kind of worked out that way. I think I knew I wanted to get back into a smaller kind of fast-growing tech startup where you know I could grow quickly with the company as opposed to kind of going down the preset career path of, you know, one of the big consulting or investment banking programs, which were very popular with my classmates at business school. But because my network in San Francisco was heavily concentrated in travel, the kind of original core cohort of Expedia team members, I was kind of pulled back into that world just because that's that's kind of where my my network was. You co-founded Points Hound in 2012. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yes. So that was after over six years at Switchfly. Um, and I was lucky to have two very smart, kind of experienced technical co founders that I had been working with closely at Switchfly during that time. Um, and we had been building you know, lots of hotel booking websites for other brands using Switchfly's technology. And had also been doing, kind of more recently at Switchfly, a lot of work with the major loyalty programs like American Advantage, United Mileage Plus. And we really saw firsthand that power of points and miles in driving consumer behavior. And so when my co-founders and I looked at the online travel market back in 2012, we just didn't see a lot of differentiation. Most sites were offering kind of the same prices, the same availability, just really different logos. And they were all kind of <laughs> bidding against each other uh, in the search engines for, for traffic. And so PointSound was kind of designed as an end around um, on that entrenched OTA model. Because we knew how to build kind of highly converting hotel uh, booking websites, and we knew the power of points and miles in driving consumer behavior, uh, we figured let's marry those two things and build our own kind of branded hotel website and then partner with the major frequent flyer programs to drive highly qualified traffic to our site instead of taking on the big OTAs in Google, where we would have been outgunned in those kind of more traditional keyword bidding and, and other paid search. You exited Points Hound. Ultimately, you went on sort of a hiatus uh, trip around the world, I would assume, to travel and do some surfing. When you were doing that, did you have any intention of returning to the same travel tech space? Or were you trying to figure out what to do next? Yeah. So, I mean, after the acquisition by Points in 2014, uh, my co-founders and I, we spent 
I spent three and a half years at points. The other two uh, spent longer. One of them is actually still there, the chief product officer. And so in about 2017, when I took some time off, I don't know if I had a really firm intention for my return. At the time, I was just very focused on breaking out of my routine, getting out of my little San Francisco bubble. I think I had some vague ideas of trying to learn Portuguese and maybe having the option of moving to Brazil and you know doing some work down there one day. Hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, the goal is really to uh, focus on aspects of my life besides my career um, and besides you know work, which had you know pretty much been all consuming since since business school. Your current company, Sensible Weather, really sounds almost too good to be true. Like if I were to describe it to my Aunt Betty Sue, I would say that you buy a good weather guarantee and then you get paid if it rains. Obviously, I'm really just scratching the surface. Can you describe it in a little more depth and perhaps a little more correctly? Yes, absolutely. That's I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I would I guess I'd say to your Aunt Betty, um, Assuming she's planning a vacation to a destination like you know South Florida or somewhere where you're looking to be you know at a resort near the beach, um, perhaps you know sit by an awesome pool. You know the outdoors and warm weather is kind of going to be an inherent part of that experience. And so unless you know your aunt is booking last minute, she's unlikely to have really an accurate weather forecast for those trip dates. Um, so you're kind of just hoping that Mother Nature cooperates and you have that you know Florida sunshine during the vacation. So what our weather guarantee would do would allow her to hedge her risk of rain or you know other bad weather, high winds, low temperatures, things like that, during her vacation. And the way that works is for about 10% of her trip cost, a little bit less, uh, she could add a weather guarantee powered by Sensible and you know, effectively add that to her shopping cart when she's checking out with the hotel reservation. Um, and then when she has that coverage, each day of her trip, Sensible will start monitoring the weather for her specific location. In this case, the latitude and longitude coordinate of her specific hotel property. Huh. Yeah. Each morning of her trip, we'll, we'll look at our day of forecast for that uh, location. And for any day where we see, say, you know, two hours of rain in like a three kilometer kind of radius of her hotel, we'll automatically send her a text message that says there's money waiting for her. All she has to do is click through a link to collect her reimbursement which is usually the daily rate. And she can choose to get that money via PayPal, Venmo, or bank transfer. So unlike you know other insurance uh, claims, there's no paperwork, no haggling with an insurance adjuster or waiting for a decision. Everything happens kind of proactively in real time. So each morning of her trip impacted by rain, um, she stands to get some money. And you know my favorite part is that because we're uh, paying out based on the morning forecast, we typically uh, will get her that money before the bad weather even happens. So she can use the, the money to go book a spot treatment at the hotel, um, have a nice meal, do some other type of indoor activity. Go to the movies out of the rain. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, this doesn't re- involve any type of cancellation of her stay. Our coverage doesn't kick in until our covered guests or travelers in destination at the resort. Um, the hotel doesn't have to make any type of refunds. They get to keep the money. So the guarantee is completely fulfilled by by Sensible. And you know our kind of informal motto is that you shouldn't have to pay for bad weather. That's kind of the, the high-level value prop we're delivering. That makes a lot of sense. I'm going to ask you how the math works. And I do not want you to tell me a formula. I realize you're not going to tell me like those sort of proprietary details or whatever. But in broad strokes, does the coverage get more expensive, for example, if it's hurricane season in Florida, or I don't know, you're traveling to a resort where it's likely to snow? Do you know what I mean? Are there, is it variable? 
Yeah, so the coverage is very dynamic, very variable. So the way it works is the platform, you know, when we actually quote a, a guarantee for an upcoming trip, our platform calculates the risk of the specific weather, whether it's rain, snow, lack of snow, something like that. Um, and again, that's based on the specific location of the, of the resort or the ski hill um, and the specific dates uh, and time of year. And so the, the price of coverage doesn't necessarily get more expensive, but the coverage itself kind of flexes up and down based on the details of that travel itinerary. So using that kind of 10% price point of the earlier example, so you know if it's a $100 room night, our coverage costs something like $10 per night. Now, if it's in the non-hurricane, kind of in the drier season, we may pay out based you know after one or two hours of rain per day um, in those drier months. But if it's hurricane season and the risk of rain is much higher, it may have to rain for three or four hours in order oh, for it to be paid out. Oh, I get yeah. it. Okay. So what's dynamic is the duration. Uh, we call that a floating time deductible. But that's what I call it. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we try to keep the price point consistent. Um, and we, we have found that, that around 10% price point is kind of the optimal price in terms of conversion. We're seeing about 30 to 50% of consumers faced with a weather guarantee offer, uh, opting to check the box and add that to their shopping cart. So, so far, it seems like the consumers are seeing a lot of value. And it's pretty seamless, right? It just is presented to them straight from the resort where they're booking. They book, they pay for it just the way that they pay for their guest room. It's not a separate entire process. That's exactly right. It's like an optional shopping cart item, the same way if you're booking a flight on an airline website, you might see the option to add travel insurance, a very similar kind of user experience. On the front end, at least. We often talk on this show about the many challenges inherent in hotel technology, everything from lack of innovation to very confusing interfaces, et cetera, et cetera. How does that impact your company's ability to work with hotels? In other words, how is the tech stack either helping or hurting you provide this service? Yeah, well... I think, you know, simply put, most hotels, especially, you know, independents or small, you know, kind of boutique groups, they don't typically control most of their e-commerce technology. So, you know, the same way like a retail merchant relies on, a, you know, on a platform like Shopify to power their online sales, many hotels use kind of other software as a service or one size fits most type platforms that are kind of templatized. And they really have to adapt their business model and operations around the functionality available on those tools. So everything from rates and availability, how they display images, property information, and then you know merchandising add-ons like uh, like a weather guarantee. So for us, the the challenge shows up when we talk to a hotelier, we explain our kind of value proposition and the guest experience, and the feedback is always you know very strong. We love this. How do we get started? But because you know our offer performs the best really on the checkout page of a hotel's website, we quickly you know have a lot of interest from the hotelier, but then they're not able to implement our API or our SDK because they just fundamentally don't control that checkout page. And so you know maybe they can change like cosmetic things like the colors, the fonts, the logos, but new functionality that impacts the shopping cart, like a new form of payment or another API integration, they really are reliant on that e-commerce vendor to build the functionality. So. For us, that means we you know, not only need to sell the hotelier on the idea of a weather guarantee, but we also have to win integrations with the various hospitality platforms that are in the market. And there's like literally hundreds of them. I was going to say, I mean, that's like a, such an uphill battle. There are so bazillion man, many to choose from. 
Right, right. So it's it's somewhat of a different go-to-market strategy than where we kind of started on our journey. It's somewhat of a kind of a different sales motion when talking to a software company as opposed to a property management company or, or a hotel owner. But we're starting to get a handle on it. And, um, you know, so long as we can provide a strong business case for the platform, so make sure that our API is easy to use, easy to integrate, that there's, you know, a economics and rev share available for the platform as well as for the hotel brand. Um, we found we find that there is interest. It's just we have to kind of find our place in their development queue and, and get that prioritization. I mean, confidential to these platforms, like all anyone ever talks about is upselling at the point of sale these days. Like, get it together, y'all. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, and they're doing it. Some of the platforms are doing it. I think that the challenge is there's just a lot of things you could potentially upsell to a, a traveler. And so there's a lot of companies like Sensible that want to be in front of a hotel's kind of installed base of consumers. And so, you know, there's just a lot of demand for those integrations and the platforms, you know, they don't have un- unlimited development resources. So they have to make tough decisions about, am I going to do, you know, a buy now, pay later integration this month? Am I going to do a, you know, gift card upsell integration, or am I going to offer a weather guarantee? And so we just have to find, kind of find our place in that roadmap prioritization. I'm interested in this and you may not have an answer for it, but I'm I'm curious about if you were to move the offer f- away from the checkout page and into post-reservation pre-stay email messaging, mm-hmm. how that would work, if, if that would work at all. Is that something you guys have looked at or tested? It is. We actually, I'd say about half of our partners are doing some version of that. Auto camp collective retreats are two examples where, you know, because we weren't able to quickly get integrated with their, you know, e-commerce vendors, uh, we did start off with a post-purchase offer where really it's kind of more like an affiliate link where in a pre-arrival email, countdown email, there's a call to action. Hey, add a weather guarantee to your upcoming stay and get paid if you have rain or other bad weather during your trip. Um, so that's something we support and it, it works well. I think the challenge with that integration is just we're fighting open rates and click-through rates and everyone gets too much email. And so there's just um, a different funnel we kind of have to fight through to get the consumer to the page where they can actually buy a weather guarantee. And so we find that just overall, the attach rates are much higher when we're integrated to the point of sale. And it's just one click to add it to the cart when they're booking the reservation, as opposed to trying to follow them later. But uh, we support both models. And ideally, we would have both integrations in place with, uh, with partners. Makes sense. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, specific tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. So I want to go back to Points Hound for a minute. When you started that business in 2012, there were already plenty of other OTAs out in the world, but you still founded a successful OTA. If someone's looking at the current landscape and worried that it's too saturated or someone's already come up with their idea, do you have any advice that you would give to them in that case? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some good advice is always just to find a real point of difference, a real problem to solve that no one else is is solving and start working on that. And, you know, I think it's okay to start small and build on momentum. So for Point Sound, we were laser focused on the use case of the kind of unmanaged business business traveler that was traveling, you know, 12 to 15 times a year for business was obsessed with topping off their points and mileage accounts. And so we built the product kind of purposely for that specific type of user, um, which wasn't really being served with some of the more mainstream travel sites. So I, I personally love seeing niche ideas in 
travel. Like I've recently come across, you know, a, tra- a, a hotel booking site just for dog owners that only shows dog friendly hotels or a hotel chain just for digital nomads or an OTA that just sells discounted lift tickets, ski tickets, a flight booking engine for just groups. So groups of nine or more travelers. So even if that initial idea seems small at first, if you're solving a real problem in Again, even if it's just for that narrow use case, um, if you can nail that use case and keep going, the chances are good that it will lead to something bigger. And I think one of the kind of canonical examples of that in Silicon Valley, at least, is Facebook. You know, people may not remember, but that started off as just a website for Harvard students. Um, and obviously, it's <laughs> become much, much, much bigger now. But they were really focused on on solving those particular problems for those particular users. And um, you know, the rest is kind of history. So that leads perfectly into this next question. And I totally understand if you don't want to answer it. But do you think that there are any glaring white spaces left in travel technology right now? Like, Where do you see an unserved consumer or a niche that hasn't been filled or a bigger opportunity? Gosh, yeah. So tons of white space. So much. I mean, we kind of talked about the hotel tech stack for small and medium sized hoteliers. So that's kind of an obvious one. You know, it seems like even in this current environment, staffing and hospitality is such a big issue that there just has to be lots of opportunities for new tools and business models for recruiting and managing and retaining staff on property. A couple other areas for hospitality are, you know, I still think dynamic pricing and revenue management is um, something the industry could do better. And so I know there's people working on it, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to create more tools in terms of pricing, reviews and ratings is kind of a another big space that that seems right for a rethink. See, it's interesting to hear you say that because there are so many review sites and so many pieces of tech that lay on top of a review site and help a hotel manage them. So I'm happy to hear you say that because I think it gets back to our earlier conversation about, look, it doesn't matter if the landscape is crowded. If you have a real point of difference, a real value proposition, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. And I think in that case, because there's so much and there's a lot of tech and there's a lot of options, it's you know, overwhelming for the hotelier that's probably also updating the social media accounts and checking in guests and kind of wearing many hats. And so I think to the extent that you can just make it very easy for them, um, maybe you're just integrated with, you know, on the payments level so that, you know, based on, you know, working with the, the payment rails or the, the credit card provider, kind of tie reviews to that way so that the hotelier doesn't have to implement yet another piece of uh, technology into their stack. So yeah, lots of opportunities. Okay, you're going to think this is such a dumb question. So be cool. (laughs) If I'm having a picnic in my backyard, I just want to know if you have any secrets based on now working in this company. Do you like, so I'm going to have an outdoor party or picnic or something. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to a resort where I can buy a weather guarantee. But is there something I should be looking at aside from, you know, like the Weather Channel or the app on my phone to give me better insight into what the weather's going to be like? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you what I do when I want to really want to know what the weather is going to be for a very specific point in time at a very specific location. Is <laughs> do you ask the climate scientists that you work with? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, sometimes I'll select a climate scientist, but in general, I have probably 20 weather apps on my phone because I'm always checking out the different you know, user interfaces and, and different data. And so, you know, if, if it's a really kind of a consequential event, I'll check three or four or five different weather apps and see if, you know, some of them are using different forecasts. And so I'll see kind of if they generally agree or disagree on the weather. 
So this can kind of give you some indication of how stable the forecast is for your picnic or your event. If there's a lot of disagreement, that's a sign that you should prepare for the unexpected. And honestly, I think that is the better answer, which is really more of a mindset. Like instead of trying to find that single killer app, that's going to be your crystal ball, try to get in the habit of just taking like a probabilistic view of the world as it you know relates to weather and avoid being overly deterministic. So like, you know, the goal doesn't have to be trying to outsmart mother nature, just getting comfortable with the odds and the risk of weather if you're a specific event. Um, so you're prepared instead of disappointed. So that could mean like, if you looks like it might be colder than you want, have some blankets on hand or a heat ma- or a heat lamp. If it looks like it might be windy, reinforce that heat lamp or other equipment. You know, if, if there's potential for rain, have some cover available. So I think like surfers and skiers tend to be very good at viewing the future weather along kind of a spectrum of probabilities. So it's like rarely like is the snow or the surf good or bad. There's just different shades of gray and combination of variables that offer up different conditions. And so that kind of informs having different equipment available or, you know, skiing a different set of runs or or paddling out a different surf spot. And so just trying to be comfortable with um, a probabilistic outlook and not getting kind of uh, too set on one specific outcome. I wonder when you go back to write your life story, like in 40 years from now, if you're going to go, you know, it all comes back to surfing. (laughs) I became a weather expert and joined this company because I was a surfer. I bet it's true. I bet it's the through line. And speaking of which, I just put two and two together that when you said surfing in Portugal, I think you probably actually meant that you were in Nazare which is where they have all these 100-foot waves. Like if you've seen the documentary, 100-foot wave, that's where they go. Mm -hmm. That's the promised land. When I watched that documentary, I seriously got heart palpitations looking at those waves. So I have to know this. Did you do that? And how are you still alive? And how did you avoid (laughs) going into cardiac arrest? Yeah, so that is a crazy wave. I am not a big wave surfer. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, but I did spend a fair amount of time in Nazareth. It's a beautiful town. And I was there kind of in October, November, when that's typically the season for those type of swells. Um, so I spent you know many mornings on that cliff kind of looking out and hearing just the loud echoes of the waves crashing in the canyon and the, you know, the maniacs on their jet skis towing around. So from as a spectator, it was great to watch. But actually, so Nazare breaks on a canyon on the south end of a very long beach called Praia Norte. And so I, I did paddle out at Praia Norte several times on much smaller days, uh, you know, when it was like three or four feet. Um, so maybe like, you know, 100 feet or 50 feet north of that the famous 100-foot uh, wave. And it was still even at, at a small size, still pretty spooky with all the echoes and currents and stuff. But yeah, I know my limits. I, I don't. I don't paddle out. It's almost a different sport when it gets to that level. I mean, it's a different sport and perhaps a different level of sanity. I am so relieved to know that you did not do that because while <laughs> it is highly entertaining to watch, it also is one of the most like takes your breath away how frightening it looks. It's like the end of that movie, The Perfect Storm. Like, <laughs> oh, here's the water. Just goodbye forever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, my mom said the same thing. So yeah, I definitely uh yeah, was not out there when Nazare was properly breaking. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Well, we've reached the fortune telling portion of our program. So now's the time when we predict the future, maybe cast a spell or two, and then we'll come back later and see if we were right. 
So what is a prediction that you have for the future of travel tech? Well, I think we're already starting to see it a little bit with certain travel suppliers and OTAs, which is just a whole suite of new value-added services coming online for travelers, whether that's new kind of fintech-enabled products or or other services. Um, I think you'll see that really become mainstream in the coming years. And so, you know, OTAs to date, I'm I'm talking about Expedia, Booking.com, sites like that, are really built to convert paid traffic. So they, you know, they pay for a keyword on Google, they get that click over to their website, and they're very focused on converting that click into a booking. So it's just kind of a very transactional mindset. And I think you're now seeing OTAs to start doing more than just trying to match supply and demand, aggregating a bunch of hotel rates or a bunch of airfares, creating packages, and then buying traffic from Google effectively. You know, Hopper is a travel booking app, is one of the more innovative ones. And so they're doing some cool stuff with Fairlocks and other kind of travel-related guarantees. Um, Sensible's guarantee, I guess, is an example of that type of value-added service. Um, but I don't know if you've heard of a Canadian startup called Sherpa, which has built a really rich data set um, of all the kind of cross-border visa rules and requirements for international travelers. And during the pandemic, they built um, similar logic for cross-border rules as it relates to COVID vaccinations and testing and that sort of thing. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And so they've got an API and so you can find that on American Airlines and American Express's travel portal has a lot of that information now. Airbnb is another example. So they're investing more and more in their air cover program, which is kind of a suite of protections and value-added services for both hosts and guests. Um, So I think kind of the overall theme is you're going to see more than just aggregation of supply and acquisition of demand, really kind of starting to see brands. And I think hotels and airlines will follow where they're leaning into these value-added services and kind of making those the key points of differentiation, as opposed to just focused on who has the lowest price and kind of who can convert the you know booking for the lowest effective CPA. It seems like we're maturing past that and you know, getting back to focusing on the experience, not just the transaction. I certainly hope so, and you know, not for nothing, but. It's hard and getting more expensive and less effective by the day to buy that kind of traffic. So it's ultimately going to be completely impossible if people don't start to add some more value into those offers. It'll be like, we spent $10 million to make $10 million and five cents. Okay. Exactly. Congratulations. (laughs) What about... This is a tough one to ask and answer. Do you foresee that an economic downturn will impact travel startups? Or do you think that the issue is isolated to tech companies that are... Obviously, I'm asking this in a biased way, but dramatically overvalued. And let me ask it in a more clear set of phrases. It feels to me like there is a correction taking place in tech that is not necessarily about economic forces, but perhaps rather about overvaluation, overhiring to then justify that valuation. And now we're having to pull back, lay people off, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense at all? It does. Yes. I mean, I think we're definitely seeing that happening with big tech, especially companies that rely on like advertising-based business models. So that's obviously a very competitive market, whether it's a social media site or, you know, Google and, and YouTube. Um, I think you know the analog in travel is you know again startups that rely on expensive paid customer acquisition will always be at risk to macro downturns because you know they've just got a lot of cost in the system um, and you know when when conversion rate falls off that 
you know, that makes those, um, it just makes it harder to find ROI. But, you know, if you have a useful product and you have unique kind of inexpensive ways of finding customers, I think the macro stuff is going to be less of an issue. Again, looking at Sherpa in the pandemic, they kind of quickly pivoted to provide that really up-to-date cross-border COVID information for international travels. And as a result, you know, they, they grew a ton at a time when... No one was even traveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, Hotwire is another example of that. So I started right after 9-11-2001. Um, and again, back then, Hotwire was just a flight booking app. Um, you know, today, their biggest products are hotel and car rentals. Um, and flights are kind of a, a lesser part of the business. But when flights were grounded after... 9-11, um, that forced them to kind of early up their hotel plans. And so they launched hotel and car very quickly. Um, and those became very successful products. And so, you know, discount channels like Hotwire, I think always are kind of counter cyclical. They'll do well when consumers feel stretched or more motivated to look for deals and make their travel budgets go farther. So, you know, I don't think travel is immune from these macro forces. Like, but I do think, you know, maybe people will take one or two trips a year instead of three or four. Maybe they'll trade down to a three-star hotel instead of a four-star option. But I don't think the fundamental human desire to travel and explore and have new experiences fundamentally changes. So I think there'll always be opportunity for, you know, for new travel businesses. So what's next for you and what is next for Sensible Weather? Yeah. So for me, I'm pretty focused on travel and hospitality. We're still pretty early days in terms of rolling out our proposition and explaining to the market exactly what a weather guarantee does and what it is and how it works. And so, you know, for me, a goal is to make that kind of weather guarantee badge as ubiquitous as, you know, buy now, pay later, like when you see a firm or one of the other buy now, pay later on a, on a retail shopping site, you kind of see that and you're like, okay, I think I, that basically means I can pay in installments instead of a credit card. So, you know, my goal is to for any travel site, whether it's a hotel site or you know a, an OTA or a tour operator, just have that badge so ubiquitous that consumers see that and say, "Oh yeah, I know that. That's the company that'll pay me back if it rains or I have bad weather." So that's that's where I'm trying to stay focused. And obviously, travel is a huge market, not just in the U.S. and internationally. So a lot of work to do to uh, to realize that vision. And you know, for the company overall, for Sensible, there's just so much opportunity within and outside of travel. So you know, rolling out new weather perils that, you know, make sense for our various use cases, whether that's snow or air quality or wind, hail. Um, there's just so many types of weather that can impact a specific type of trip or outdoor experience. And then starting to get into new markets like live sports, live music and entertainment, uh, even dining. So many restaurants during the pandemic moved so many of their seated inventory outdoors. And when, you know, it's like your busy kind of summer weekend and more than half of your Revenue is coming from people sitting outside if it rains and you have to close that section down for a day. There's like a real financial loss there. And so using kind of climate analytics and insure tech, there's just some obvious use cases uh, outside of travel. And so, you know, I think for the company, we'll continue to explore new markets. But for myself, I'm, I'm staying focused on travel and hospitality. Excellent. Okay, folks, before we tell Pete goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Pete, what's the story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Yeah, so this isn't especially salacious or anything, but it is fairly embarrassing. Um, <laughs> and I think the only Perfect. person I've uh, I've ever told is my uh, is my Point Sound co-founder, Chris. So this goes back to I guess spring of 2014, the night before we announced the Point Sound's acquisition by Points. So that that day, I had to fly to New York City. Um, I think I was 
going for a conference. I forget what exactly, but the flight from the West Coast got delayed. So I ended up getting into Newark like very late uh, that night. And our PR team had scheduled like back-to-back media interviews for me early that following morning before the press release hit the wire. And so I kind of had like a pretty busy, stressful day ahead of me. And I was, you know, tired from traveling all day. And so we ended in Newark like well after midnight. And it was probably after 2 a.m. when I finally got to my hotel in Manhattan, which of course I had booked on Point Sound. Um, and when I got to the checkout, check-in desk, just wanting to get my key and go flop on my bed. I was told I was getting walked, which um, oh, no! I'm sure the listeners will know that occasionally happens uh, to the best of us. But basically, uh, for those who don't know, getting walked means that the hotel just doesn't have the room that you um, booked, kind of like when you get bumped on a flight. And so the clerk was very nice and apologetic, but basically told me, hey, we've got a hotel like five blocks away where uh, they've got a room for me, but I've got to grab my bags and walk and so at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> am, of course yeah <gasps> and so yeah and i just you know and i had calls like three or four hours and so i really just wanted to crash and be in bed and you know and if it was expedient or something i'd be like shaking my fist at the travel merchant where i bought my hotel and i got screwed but it was just a sur- surreal experience wanting to blame the website i booked on um, <laughs> but of course it was my own site and i had no one to blame which uh, somehow made the whole thing a lot more frustrating That's and then so of course good. you know had to get up the next morning and wave the flag and um, talk about how great Point Sound is to, to all the media when I was <laughs> having this uh, very frustrating moment. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter Van Dorn, thank you so much for being here. I am super excited about this company. I think it's really interesting and can't wait to follow your progress along. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. And yeah, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 61. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 